Welcome to St. James. Glad you all are here with us. Welcome to everybody who's watching on the live stream as well. Um, shoot me a, uh, an email or a text and let me know you're watching. And uh, trying to stay in touch with our members who haven't yet come back to worship. Uh, trying to stay in touch with people who I don't know who have been watching. Uh, so please, uh, you can find my uh, email address or contact info on the church website. Please uh, let me know who you are and uh, what you're interested in and that you've been worshiping with us. Okay, so I've got a few announcements this morning. Uh, schedule stuff. One is that uh, the C.S. Lewis Bible study is being suspended uh, for uh, midweek uh, worship services. This, this Wednesday night is Ash Wednesday, so we'll have an Ash Wednesday service here with imposition of ashes at 7 o'clock p.m. And then every Wednesday after that until Holy Week, we'll have um, midweek Lent services. There will be uh, baked goods of some sort and treats after the services downstairs. So uh, hang around after the service is over and feel free to join us down there. Um, another big announcement is uh, we are going to, uh, the, the mask mandate uh, is lifted from Illinois starting tomorrow, I think. February 20th is the last day. And so two Sundays from now, March 13th, we're going to go back to one worship service. And so we're going to have the 8 o'clock service is going to go away. Well, I guess this service is going to go away too. Uh, we're going to have a 9 o'clock worship service and then Bible study at 10, in Sunday school at 10.30 after that. And that's in two weeks. So uh, if you bump into anybody from church who isn't here and uh, you're having small talk about service times, I don't know if you do that kind of thing. Uh, just let them know that we're switching our service times on March 13th. To, that's also um, the, when, when we change the clocks, when we put the clocks forward too. So if that helps you remember it, that's when we're doing that. Um, okay, I think that's all the announcements I have. Stand with me and let me open us in prayer, and then we'll jump into worship. Father, be with us this morning. You know how helpless we are. You know how much we need you. We have... Uh, we lack the power to rescue ourselves, and we lack the motivation to rescue ourselves, both those things. Father, you are the only one that we know who is both strong enough to save us, strong enough to make things good, and love us enough to be motivated to make things good. And so we come to you this morning um, begging you to meet with us and give yourself to us and to fix us and to fix our whole world and do it for your glory and do it for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Uh, one more word going into the confession and absolution, just to remind you a little bit of my sermon from last Sunday. We're going to do the confession and absolution, and I'm going to announce the grace of God to you, and then I'm going to say, I forgive your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember that this is what Jesus told us to do, and you guys are my sphere and so he's called me to forgive your sins on his behalf. And you have your own sphere, and he calls you to forgive the sins of others on his behalf as well. And so what I'm doing here at the end of the, in the absolution is I'm not doing pastor stuff. I'm doing Christian stuff. And this is the kind of thing that we are to offer to each other as well, okay? So let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, great God, whom we behold in awe and wonder, who has kept covenant and steadfast love with your people from age to age. We have sinned and done wrong enacted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have known in our hearts what is right, and yet we did wrong anyway. We have been fascinated by evil, delighted with pleasing ourselves, 
satisfying our desires, serving ourselves with pleasures. O Lord, great God, have mercy on us according to your steadfast love. We know you are a God who delights in goodness. Grant that we too might delight in goodness. We know you are a God who rejoices in peace and justice. Grant that we might be at peace with ourselves and each other. O Lord, great God, grant that our hearts might be filled with the love of justice, with peace beyond understanding, with patience, with joy. These prayers we present to you, O Father, in the name of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain and yet lives forevermore. Upon this, your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Savior, Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn.
Let's read Psalm 99 together. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The King in His might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Moses and Aaron were among His priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon His name. They called to the Lord. In the pillar of the cloud He spoke to them. They kept His testimonies in the statute that He gave them. O Lord our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading and the Epistle reading are both about Moses. Uh, this is a Transfiguration Sunday, so we're going to be reading about Moses in the Gospel reading. Deuteronomy 34, this is the last chapter in the book of Deuteronomy. We just, uh, we just read through this in adult Bible study. It's the story of Moses' death. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley, in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there had not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading is from Hebrews chapter 3, comparing Jesus and Moses, which a lot of Hebrews does. Therefore, therefore holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 9. Now, about eight days after these things, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Okay, Transfiguration Sunday. Uh, Do this once a year. Uh, Transfiguration Sunday in the church year uh, comes right in between Epiphany and Lent. And uh, the reason why is so Epiphany is, by the way, it's like you can, think about, you can think about these themes whenever you want. It's not like there's, this, you know, there's a rules about when you can talk about stuff. But Epiphany is a, is a season where we focus on Jesus and who he is and how he reveals himself to us. And we read a lot of texts where Jesus is kind of showing off his glory. So a lot of texts from the Gospels where Jesus is doing powerful miracles, 
preaching powerful things, um, uh, uh, receiving honor that's really only due God. He, he receives divine titles like Lord and uh, Son of Man. These are things that no human being should be called. I mean, if you understand what those things mean, no human being should be, and he receives them. He uh, claims to forgive sins. He just forgives people's sins. Um, all, these sorts of things. And when you get to the transfiguration, that's kind of the epitome of it. That's Jesus' glory on full display. But, but now leading away from that in the Gospels, there's going to be less of the kind of the magnificent victories in Jesus likes silencing the crowd and people wondering over the mighty power of this great prophet of word and deed. And there's going to be more darkness. Jesus is going to spend a lot of time telling his disciples, hey, I'm going up to Jerusalem and I'm going to get killed. That's what we focus on in Lent. We focus on kind of the brokenness of the world and the need for uh, Jesus to die and that sort of thing. And so transfiguration stands as kind of a fulcrum point for that. So it's a good spot to kind of stop and review what we've talked about during Epiphany and uh, then to move on to Lent and start thinking about the cross and, and, and what it means to be people who worship a suffering God. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. There's a, it's two almost separate mindsets. The God of victory and the God who suffers are the same God, and they kind of find their place here at the story of transfiguration. So let's look at it, and I've just got three things I want to point out to you, and they're all sort of big picture things, nothing fancy here this morning. First of all, the glory of Jesus, which is what the transfiguration is about. Second of all, I'd like to look for a few minutes at the witnesses that are here, and um, then to talk about the cross of Jesus, which is embedded in this story, and this is kind of like the, the kickoff point to head towards the cross, and uh, really can't understand transfiguration without the cross. Also, you can't understand the cross without transfiguration either, but more on that later. Okay, let's start off with the glory of Jesus. There are three things in this story that... that demonstrate Jesus's glory. And so when I say glory, it's kind of a religious word, that, you know, it's kind of thing that uh, pious people say, religious people say. Glory is not that fancy a word in the Bible. It's actually a word that just means weight. In fact, in the Old Testament, it can literally be translated fat. You know, it's like Eli was a fat man in, in the book of 1 Samuel. The word that's used for fat there is glory. Eli had glory. But, so you can be literal, weight, but it can also be figurative weight in the same way that we in English talk about giving weight to something. Like I give a lot of weight to so-and-so's opinion. Or I put a, he, that, that guy puts a lot of emphasis, that guy puts a lot of weight on his job. That sort of thing. The, the biblical way of talking about that is glory. We give glory, we make much of something. We emphasize something in the way that's appropriate to it. So when we say that Jesus has glory here, what we mean is the full weight of who Jesus is is revealed. There's three different ways that it comes about. Like, I don't have glory, you know? I mean, the, the glory that I have is the glory of the love that you guys give me, the glory of knowing Jesus. It's all sort of like secondary glory. It's not anything that comes from me. Jesus has glory. He has true, honest-to-goodness weight. And that's what's going on here. Again, I'm sorry, uh, back to what I was originally saying. Three things here. First of all, the shining appearance in verse 29 as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white, literally white like lightning. In the Old Testament, and I'm going to be talking about a lot about the Old Testament today, okay? In the Old Testament, when you meet a character whose appearance is like dazzling like lightning, it is always an angel. 
It's always some divinely powerful being. I'm not saying that Jesus is an angel. What I am saying is in the book of Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has a vision where he meets this man who comes and talks to him. And the man's appearance is like lightning. Ezekiel has a similar sort of a vision in Ezekiel chapter 1. He has a vision, you guys are familiar with Ezekiel, you know that kind of weirdo, uh, some people have speculated, uh, drug-induced vision of the, the four-faced creatures with the spinning wheels. And Ezekiel says their appearance is dazzling, it's like lightning, he says. Well, those are divine creatures, the creatures of divine power. One of the ways to show off Jesus' divine power here in the transfiguration is that his appearance becomes dazzlingly white. It's hard to look at even. The second thing that we see here is the cloud. In verse uh, 34, uh, the, the Moses and Elijah are leaving. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So there's, there's this cloud that comes down on them. Again, you really do ha- kind of have to know the Old Testament if you're going to understand that. It's not just like kind of a foggy day that's happening there, and you know Luke feels like doing a little meteor- meteor- meteorology report. The cloud in the Old Testament is a symbol of God's presence. Remember Exodus 40? Uh, the people of Israel build the tabernacle. It gets set up, and they gather for the ceremony, and the, the cloud of God's presence comes and lives in the tabernacle. Same thing in 1 Kings, when uh, Solomon builds the temple, 2 Kings, one of those kings. Solomon builds the temple, and he prays this magnificent prayer, and God comes to live in the temple, and the temple is filled with smoke. It's filled with this cloud of God's presence. Well, that's what's happening here. This is God is actually present. And one of the ways that that gets manifested is this bank of smoke that fills them with fear. The third way is this, the voice from heaven. Verse 26, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son. This is sort of echoing um, the baptism of Jesus and some Old Testament text too. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Is this not like, this is kind of like the primal urge of all of us I talk to Christians and who say this, and I talk to non-Christians who say this as well. Like at different times in your life, you're like, I just wish God would speak and say something to me. And like what I do as a Protestant pastor, one of my first things is to say, God has spoken. He's spoken through his word. And actually, uh, this is true. Second Peter 1, a quick bonus material here. Peter says in Second Peter 1, read the end of Second Peter 1. Peter says, I was on the mountain. I saw his glory, but we have a, sure, a more sure word of prophecy because no scripture has been given by the private interpretation of it. So even Peter, who has seen, he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, says, actually, we have something better than Transfiguration. We have the Bible. That, is, that still doesn't stop us, myself, from wishing sometime that God would just like, just tell me what you want me to do. Just speak out of heaven. Well, they get to experience that. They're confused about what's going on there. God himself speaks from heaven and says, I'll tell you what's going on. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is a miraculous gift that, that, that Peter, James, and John get here, isn't it? I mean, this is, I'm, I'm going to say things that everybody on Transfiguration Sunday is required to say. This is a, an unbe- unbelievable gift. Up until this point, it is possible for the disciples to interpret Jesus as the last in a long line of powerful prophets. Moses was a powerful prophet who did miracles, Elijah was a powerful prophet who did miracles. Other prophets in the Old Testament did miracles. Here's Jesus. Holy cow, he's a prophet too. Look at him do the miracles. That's powerful. But then you get to the Mount of Transfiguration and the veil is pulled back momentarily. The cloud descends, the dazzling white light coming out of Jesus' body, the voice from heaven. And for this brief moment, Peter, James, and John see this is not just another prophet. This is the prophet. 
This is the Son of God, and we have to listen to him. This is a gift, this glory of God. Let's talk for a few minutes about the witnesses to Jesus here. So two groups of them. First of all, Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are here. Um, and they're, they meet with Jesus, and they're uh, talking with him. Well, why these two? Why Moses and Elijah? Well, um, there's not one simple reason, actually, when you start to read the Old Testament. It's a lot of different things. Uh, we just sang Jesus on the mountain peak, and one of the things the hymn emphasizes is that it's the law and the prophets that are being represented there. Moses as the dispenser of the law. Elijah as the apex of the prophets. You know, Elijah, was, Elijah did a bunch of the same miracles that Jesus did. He raised the dead. He fed thousands of people with a small amount of breads and loaves. So here's, here's representatives of the law and the prophets there hanging out with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's true. That's true. There's more than that, though. There's uh, several different things that are going on here. First, uh, somebody, uh, we, we were talking about uh, Moses in, in um, Bible study this morning, and somebody brought up that both Moses and Elijah experienced weird departures from the world. They both had not normal leaving the world. Moses, uh, God tells Moses, go up on that mountain and you're going to die up there. And then God buries him and nobody sees him ever again and nobody knows where he's buried. That's weird. Elijah uh, is taken up to heaven. He doesn't even die. He's taken up to heaven in chariots of fire. Is there some reason that they're there? The, the two people that we know of who had those two prophets that had kind of weird departures who were hanging out with Jesus, perhaps, there's also the fact that they both experienced, both Moses and Elijah had, had experienced the presence and power and glory of God on mountaintops. Moses in Exodus, twice, in Exodus 24, he goes up onto the mountaintop to meet with God to ratify the covenant. God descends in the cloud, thunder, lightning. Exodus 34, he gets to meet with God again. That was the time when, Moses said, when God said to Moses, I'm gonna show you my glory, but you can't see my face. And he announces his characters to Moses. Elijah too, in 1 Kings 18, is fighting with the prophets of Baal. And some of you, some of you I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but they set up multiple offers, offers altars, and uh, Elijah says, this is my altar, I'm going to pray that God would send fire down from heaven and light this altar. And the prophets of Baal say, we're going to pray that Baal would send fire to light this altar. And the prophets of Baal, Baal never sends fire. Yahweh sends fire to light uh, Elijah's altar. And do you remember the, the denouement of that scene? So first of all, fire also is a symbol of God's presence. But there's this weird scene at the end. There's been a drought over the land, and one of Elijah's servants comes and says, hey, there's a weird cloud shaped like a hand moving this way. And what's happening here, this is a couple things, rain's on the way is one, but these powerful mountaintop experiences where God's presence is physically felt with smoke or with fire. Moses and Elijah, this is not the first time they've experienced this. The other thing is this is that Moses and Elijah are both characters who people in Jesus' day, Jews in Jesus' day, anticipated that some version of Moses or Elijah would show up when the Messiah came. In fact, if you're looking at your bulletin, you won't see this, but just a couple of verses prior to our reading in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says to his disciples, who do the crowd say that, say that I am? And they say, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets of old. So who are they talking about? Well, John the Baptist is somebody that everybody was familiar with. Elijah is one. That they, they, maybe, that maybe you're Elijah. One of the prophets of old. There's this constant theme in the Gospels, this longing for a prophet like Moses who would come back someday and be like Moses but be a more powerful prophet. In fact, a bonus material here, 
when the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It's actually a quote from Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses promises that a prophet like me is going to come someday and you will listen to him. What's, God, what's, the, what's the father saying is, this is the new Moses. You got to see the old Moses. This is the new Moses. You got to see the, uh, the old Elijah. This is the new Elijah. Uh, in fact, um, uh, Malachi chapter four prophesied that when the messianic age would come, it would be Elijah that would be a harbinger of it. The very last verses in the Old Testament. I'm gonna send Elijah and he's gonna reunite the, the, the hearts of the fathers with the hearts of the sons and that sort of thing. Jesus is gonna go on and say, John the Baptist was actually Elijah. But what you see here is this, in fact, what you see here is these figures of the future messianic age coming and plopping themselves down in the future on top of this mountain. And the disciples are gonna notice this in a minute. Disciples are the other witnesses, Moses and Elijah. Oh, let me just wrap up Moses and Elijah real quick. Why are they there? Why is it Moses and Elijah? And there's a lot of different reasons. I can't give you one specific reason. But one thing that we can say for certain, though, is this, is that Moses and Elijah are not to be compared with Jesus in the story. That's one of the things that comes out. One of the ways, I'll give you another one in a minute here, when the disciples want to set up booths, tabernacles, uh, to temporarily house them. But one of the ways is the way that glory is talked about here. Check out verse 21. Uh, Moses and Elijah appeared in glory. They appeared in glory. It's not their glory. They're just in the glory. Well, whose glory is it? Keep on reading in verse 22. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, Jesus' glory. The glory is Jesus's. The glory of Moses and Elijah here is just derivative. They're basking in Jesus' glory. It's not theirs. So in that image, you get this, this sense that like Jesus is the one Moses and Elijah are below him. I know that he's a prophet too. I know that maybe you've thought of him as just, maybe you've thought of Messiah as just a human being who's a powerful leader and prophet. But actually, this guy God the Father is saying through all these different signs and the voice, this guy is in a different category than Moses and Elijah. As great as they were, this guy is actually divine. Human, yes. He's got a body just like you. He's got emotions just like you. He walks around, talks just like you. He has a job just like you guys have but he's something more than that. He's actually in the category of creator God himself. He is one with the Father. So let's talk about the disciples real quick here. The disciples, like I said, um, they build these uh, booths. It's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? Uh, in verses 33 through 35, Master Peter says, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So it's kind of a funny thing that... Uh, uh, He's kind of babbling, Luke implies here. As he was saying these things, the cloud came and says, this is, my, this is my son, my chosen one. Okay, so let's make three booths for you and Moses and Elijah to live in. What's going on with that? Well, there's, uh, um, there's a good impulse behind what he wants to do, and then there's two wrong impulses. There's one good one and two wrong ones. The first one is this, and, and again, it's very, very heavy on Old Testament uh, this morning in the gospel reading. What's the deal with making booths? That's kind of a weird thing. Like if people were coming over to your house and you were real excited, would you be like, hey, let's set up tents and we can all hang out? Uh, what's the deal? Well, the Jews were required uh, from the time of Moses on to celebrate every year the festival of booths, the festival of tabernacles. It's a very, very important Jewish festival. They still celebrate it to this day. If you go over to University City, during, it's later on in the year, 
uh, the calendar year when, when they're celebrating the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths. People will go sleep outside of their house in their backyard and they'll set up like temporary shelters, booths, and they'll celebrate this festival in there. And this is what they would do in Jesus' day. Every year they would go up to the temple and they would bring their sacrifices and they would sacrifice them and cook all that food and then they would eat it and have a party. And they would all stay in temporary shelters. And Moses said, here's why God wants you to do this. Because he wants you every year, he wants you to do this festival to remind yourself that you lived in temporary shelters out in the wilderness. That you had no home for 40 years and God took care of you and loved you and kept you in the palm of his hand and led you to the promised land. And to always remember that, once a year, I want you to stay living, have this festival, and you want, I want you to live outdoors in temporary shelters. Now, that's that. That's why they bring it up. Why are they bringing it up here? This is weird. Is the Festival of Tabernacles going on? Maybe not. But here's what's going on. There is this theme in the Old Testament. There's this idea that when the new creation came, when the Messiah would come and put everything to rights, that all the nations would celebrate together a big festival of booths. All the pagans would come. They would convert to the worshiping the Messiah of the Jews or following the Messiah of the Jews, I should say, worshiping the one true God. And then they would all celebrate the festival of booths together. Zechariah 14 references this. Go back and read all of Zechariah 14 when you get a chance, especially verses 16 through 21. I'm only gonna read verse 16 to you. Then everyone, when the Messiah shows up and puts things to right, Zechariah says, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem, all of our enemies, shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. So the Feast of Booths happening ends up being kind of an end time symbol. It's like an eschatological hope that when everything gets fixed, we're all gonna celebrate the Feast of Booths together. And it's quite possible that Peter's like, I think it's happening now, let's do this. That's a good impulse. He misunderstands a lot, but one thing he gets is that Jesus has begun the new creation. Now, what is it that he doesn't get? There's two wrong impulses here. First of all, like I said earlier, Jesus is not to be equated with Moses and Elijah. They are on two separate planes. Moses and Elijah are men just like me and you. They've got vocations just like you've got your vocation. Jesus is a man like me and you, but he's also divine. And when, they, when, when Peter says, let's set up three tents, one of the things that he's implying is, is that these three great prophets, let's make a big deal out of you three great prophets. And that's when the Father speaks out of heaven and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He makes much about Jesus. So this, Peter is still a little slow, to, and it's totally not his fault, like if we were there, like if you, if you had a construction worker come up to you and say, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, would your, would your first thought be, like, I bet this guy created the world? Probably not. Peter's is a little bit, he's, he's going to get it. He's going to get it eventually. It's probably going to take the resurrection to get there. But this is one piece of the puzzle that fits in there. Jesus is different than Moses and Elijah even. Uh, third thing, wrong impulse. It's, a, it's an attempt to stay on the mountain. Hey, this is great. Let's stay here. But Jesus can't stay there. He can't stay on the mountain. As, as good as it is, he's got a job to do, and that job involves his death. Which brings us to the third and last thing I want to point out to you. The cross of Jesus in this story. Jesus can't stay on top of the mountain because he, he is determined, he's destined, he's called by his Father. His heart longs for rescuing his people and that means uh, going down and being crucified on the cross. It's an interesting conversation in, uh, that Moses and Elijah are having. Verse 30 again, Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus. Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, 
which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. If you're looking at your bulletin, it says departure there. If you're looking at your Bible, if you have the ESV or the NIV, you'll notice that there's a marginal note next to the word departure, which says that the actual Greek word behind departure is the word for exodus. Jesus is discussing with Moses and Elijah, they're discussing his exodus, which he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, now why use the word exodus? It's kind of a, it can, I mean, it can literally mean departure. The exodus in the book of Exodus is a departure from Egypt, but it's not the normal way that we talk about departures in Greek or in English. I, like if I'm leaving here today, I wouldn't say to one of you like, hey, I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to leave and head home. I, I would say leave and head home. I wouldn't say I'm about to make my exodus and go home. It would just be a little bit clunky and various, it would feel very, very technical. Exodus can be slang term for death as well, but still that's also, there's other better words for death. There's, there's Greek idioms, slang terms for death, like falling asleep. Why is he talking about Exodus in reference to what he's going to do in Jerusalem? Well, here's the reason. He's talking about his death, but he's locating his death as a chapter. Listen up, it's super important. He's locating his death as a chapter, the last chapter, in the long story of Exodus that started when Moses led the people out of Egypt, when God determined, I'm going to redeem my slave people out of slavery and I'm going to liberate them. It finally finds its climax here in this last chapter, the, the chapter of the death and resurrection of Jesus, where God, through the death and resurrection of his son, liberates all slaves from their slavery and rescues the world. And the best word that Jesus has the best word that Luke has for that is the word exodus. Jesus is going to die on the cross, and it's going to accomplish the great cosmic exodus. It's going to release people out of slavery into freedom. And in many ways, that's better than witnessing secondhand the glory of Jesus on top of the mount. Which brings us to the last point. With the Mount of Transfiguration kicking us off towards the cross, with the main topic of conversation on the Mount of Transfiguration being this exodus, the cross of Jesus. You cannot have the glory without the cross. You cannot have the glory without the cross. Here's a better way to say it. Let me say this. What, who Jesus is as God benefits us not at all without what Jesus does. If Jesus is truly God, but he doesn't die on the cross, it doesn't help us out one bit. If Jesus dies on the cross, but he's not truly God, it doesn't help us out one bit. Transfiguration needs Calvary. The two go hand in hand, and you cannot separate the one from the other. So what does this mean? This means that Jesus, equally at home on Mount, uh, whatever Mount this is, we're not really told, it's just speculation, equally at home on this Mount, equally home, at home on, the, uh, on uh, Mount Calvary, is accomplishing something big because he is God. He is the God of glory, read about here. He's also the God of suffering, and that's who he is, and you can't have the two without each other. I'm going to try, try to be practical here in a few minutes, but let me, let me make a, a, an illustration here real quick. I'm going to quote from um, Martin Luther's Heidelberg uh, Disputation, which was written about a year after the uh, 95 Thesis. And he's arguing against this notion of Christianity as power and strength and glory and relevance. And he's saying this, is that everybody wants it to be good. We all want it to be good. We want, to be, we want, we want, the, we want the knowledge we want the experience. We want to be good people. We want to do good works. And all of that is so much haze in the way of the heart of Christianity, which is the cross. And the way that Luther talks about it is the distinction between the thought theology of glory, which is a theology that says value is glory, and a theology of cross, which finds ultimate value 
in a crucified God. Here's what he says. This is clear. He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. So many of you are suffering. Every single one of you is suffering. Some of it's sort of like low-level background noise suffering. Some of you, it's all you can think about right now. And, and the temptation is to say, God is, I don't know where he's at. What Luther is saying here is, yes, that's right. That's, that's, it's not obvious where God is at when you're suffering. Because God hides himself in suffering. But God is in the suffering. If Jesus died on the cross, that's definitely a hidden God. Nobody by nature looks at a dude getting crucified and says, that looks like God. That's a supernatural. In fact, when Jesus dies, nobody gets it. Well, some, some people get it. His mom, a few women who are there, maybe not because they get it so much, but because they just loved him and can't stand to be away from him when he dies, don't want him to die alone. There's really like two dudes who get it. That's it in the whole history of humanity. At that moment, there's only two Christians, true, like, we get it and we believe in this. That's the thief on the cross who unbelievably says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Who says that to a guy who's getting crucified? Hey, we think that you're gonna win and you're gonna set up your kingdom. And I want you to remember, that's only, that's, a, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Roman centurion who stands there at the foot of the cross, watches him die and says, truly, this guy, must, this guy was the son of God. It's the only people who get it. It's hidden. N nobody blames any of us for when you're going through hard times to say, I, I don't know where God's at. Where are you at, God? Luther says it's totally natural. He hides himself in the cross. Let me keep on going here. Therefore, he prefers works to suffering. This is the, uh, the, the, the theologian of glory who's like, I want things to be good and relevant and smart and powerful. He prefers works to suffering. He prefers glory to the cross. He prefers strength to weakness. He prefers wisdom to folly. And in general, he prefers good to evil. But God can be found only, this is the most important thing I'm going to say in, in this sermon, God can be found only in suffering and the cross. That's the only place you can find God. Now, our, look, the disciples, are, this is, again, this is not like, nobody's like, so get it, you know, get, get yourself straight, you know, you better recognize. Nobody's saying that. The disciples themselves battle with this like crazy for a long time, probably for the rest of their lives. But definitely at this moment, they battle with it. So, so look, the disciples have gone up on this mountain to be with Jesus. Jesus has gone up there to pray. And the disciples, Peter, James, and John, have gone up there to pray with him. They've managed to fall asleep while Jesus is praying. They wake up, though, and they see this vision of glory, and they're like, can we stay here, Jesus? Please, can we stay here? Jesus is like, no. Four months later, they're going, to go, they're going to climb another mountain. They're going to climb the Mount of Olives with Jesus. They're going to go into the Garden of Gethsemane. And once again, Jesus is going to say, you three, Peter, James, and John, come with me. Let's pray. And again, they're going to fall asleep. And this time they're going to wake up, and they're going to wake up surrounded by soldiers who are arresting their Messiah. And they're going to bail. And that's me and you. When you experience the glory, you're like, this is it. Now I know you, God. Now I'm connected to Jesus. But when the suffering comes, you're like, I'm out of here. We're, again, look, look, we're all like this. This is just the way we're programmed. But what, what Transfiguration wants us to see is that you can't have God without the suffering. He truly is God. He is the God of Transfiguration. He's the God of glory, but he comes to us in the cross. And there's, no, there's absolutely no way to get away. Like, we all struggle with this, every single one of us. I, 
honestly, like 50% of my sermon illustrations could be uh, off of stuff I see on Twitter. And I honestly, I hate myself for that. I hate being on Twitter so much. But this week I was, you know, I was looking at Twitter and, you know, checking out links about, you know, Russia invading Ukraine and stuff like that. And there's this, uh, uh, there's this uh, group that I don't follow, but like people that I follow, follow. It's a Twitter account called the New Evangelicals. And they posted something about this. Here's what, I'm just going to read this to you. This was their tweet. And it says this, it's really easy to tell the world God is on the throne and in control when it's not your country facing extinction or your family that has become a casualty. It's a statement dripping with privilege. See what they're saying? Like, don't, don't tell people in Ukraine that God's on control and on the throne. That's just you and your privilege sitting peacefully and comfortably in America that's saying that. All right. There's a part of that there's a part of that that we need to listen to and say, yeah. I, I, if, if, if you call me and somebody, and like somebody super close to you has died, and I show up at the scene and I say to you, hey, don't worry. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord. You should like slap me right there. I'm giving you permission to slap me. It would be a cruel, cruel thing to say. That would be one mistake. The, the, the sister mistake of that would be to say, you're suffering? That's because God's trying to teach you a lesson. He, he wants you to learn something, and he's put you in this suffering so that you can, like, you know, you've got there's some sin, sin that you're grappling with or some brokenness, and God is really trying to get at that and, like, really teach you what's right from. That would be the equal sin. But what does that have in common with this? That don't tell people, don't tell people, that, don't, tell, don't tell the people in Ukraine that God's in control. That's a privilege. That's, that's, that's coming from a place of privilege. What do they both have in common? Give you five seconds to think about this. Here's what they both have in common. They both believe that suffering is a sign that God is somehow distant. Both of those, both of those don't believe that suffering is actually a way to know that God is there. Both of those don't believe that the people in Ukraine are experiencing God in deeper and more profound ways than we are here at Peace and Ease. It's privileging this well, being close to God is like a comfortable thing. It's a theology of glory thing. It's about wisdom. And everything that Jesus tells us, everything that Paul is screaming at us in the Corinthian letters is that God comes to us in suffering. And when you suffer, you are never closer to Jesus than at that moment than when you are linked arm in arm with the suffering God. So Miroslav Volf. Miroslav Volf is a, 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 he's a, a, I can't remember if he's Croatian, Croatian or Serbian. He's from that country. He grew up in the Civil War. He's now a theologian at Yale, and he's written a lot about this. And one of the things he says is this, is that the notion that when God is happy with me, things go well, and when things don't go well, God is like being a jerk or he's absent or whatever, he basically says that's kind of like a Western. That's an American notion. People who don't grow up with suffering, it's easy for them to say that, like, Jesus died so that you could be happy. Jesus died so you could be at peace. That's actually not biblical at all. Jesus died so that our sufferings could be joined to his sufferings, so that we know that when we die, like he died, we'll rise from the dead like he rose from the dead. When you are experiencing heartache and loneliness, we are to know that Jesus, that God himself actually knows what heartache and loneliness is about. When your friends abandon you, you can know for certain that God himself knows what it's like for his friends to abandon him. That's when you're closest to God, when you're at the foot of the cross. That's what, the, that, that's what this story is about. So let me leave you with two things and then we'll be done. First of all, let me leave you, 
maybe three things. Don't imagine that the powerful emotional experience of being close to God is where it's at. That's good. Sometimes God gives you transfiguration. Don't imagine that deep insights into theology and doctrine and like, if I just knew Greek or something stupid like that, I'd be like closer to God. That's not where it's at. Where it's at is in suffering. It's in suffering. Nobody likes suffering. You're not supposed to root for suffering. I mean, Paul kind of says weird things that indicate like, that I may know him and the fellowship of his suffering. It's kind of a weird prayer to pray. If you want to do that, that's fine. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying Paul, it's hard for me to pray that. Like, you know, God purify me and use whatever. That's a difficult one. But know that, we're, that, the, that the heart of Christian experience is suffering. Suffering along with Jesus. Let me wrap it up with these things. You're going through suffering. All of you are. I want you to remember these two things. This is just a summary of everything I've said. First of all, your suffering is right in the heart of God. The death of your loved one, the fear of your own death, the struggles that you and your family and your friends are going through, that's right inside of Jesus on the cross. Don't turn your back on that. Look for the hidden God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Know that whatever you're experiencing now, he is feeling it right along with you at this moment. He knows all of it. Second thing is this, the transfiguration is real. The power is real. He's determined to make all things new. That's not some sort of like, it's not that the transfiguration's fake and the cross is real. It's not that the cross is fake and the transfiguration is real. They both go together. Don't you crave this? Do you you want a God who is powerful enough to pull off the transfiguration but doesn't love you enough to join himself to you in your suffering? That's worthless. Do you want a God who loves you enough to participate in your sufferings with you but isn't powerful enough to pull off the transfiguration and actually change the world to make it better? You don't want that God either. You know what you get in the Bible? Jesus of Nazareth, the God who loves you, the God who's powerful enough to rescue you, the God who's doing it. Let's stand and pray. We'll have communion. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us and for being good to us. Thank you for rescuing us us from sin. Thank you for rescuing us from this broken world. Father, forgive us for wanting to run from you in our suffering. Draw us back to your suffering self. Help us to know and see you in the cross. Not not primarily in our good times. Help us to be thankful for our good times. Help us to be thankful for the peace. Help us to be thankful for the moments of clear insight into your word. Help us to be thankful for the moments when when emotionally we're, we're connected to you and we're really experiencing the power of your love emotionally. Help us, help us to be thankful for the times when you, by your grace, help us make good decisions. But Father, help us to be willing to not judge you by those moments, but to always see and understand you in the cross of your son, Jesus. Lord, in your mercy. Practically, Father, lots of suffering going on in the world today. I pray that you'd be with the people of Ukraine. I pray that you'd be with our fellow Christians in Ukraine right now, our fellow Lutherans in Ukraine. Be with all people there. Defend them against the attacks of Putin. Lord, I pray that you would work in the heart of the Russian leadership to put aside these idolatrous desires for power, for control, for rebuilding old ancient idols like empires. That you would help, that you would help the leaders of, of Russia, that you would help our leaders, leaders all over the world, help our president, help our Congress people, help our judges, help our state officials, help our mayor and our local county officials. Father, help all of them to value justice and righteousness and service of others and self-sacrifice in your name. Give us a world that would 
that would have a minimal amount of human-caused suffering. Lord, we know that it's inevitable that it's happening. But mitigate it, Father. And all the other suffering that just happens from living in a broken world, the, the sick bodies out here, the fear of death that some of us struggle with, the mourning that some of us are going through, the broken relationships that all of us are living in to one degree or another, financial issues. Father, I just pray that you would meet us in those areas. And by the power of your son's uh, death and resurrection, that you would repair these things. We pray especially this morning that you would be with Henry Dunn, a daughter of Eric and Melissa, as he's dealing with significant health issues. Pour healing and strength and energy, restoration into his body. Bring glory to yourself through all these. We pray this, uh, Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because you've brought us into your throne room and called us your sons and daughters and have invited us to bring all these requests to you. Make us bold to bring our requests to you. In the name of our brother Jesus, amen. Let's confess our faith now with the words of the Nicene Creed. You can find this in your bulletin. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead in the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given to you. Do this, do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Say. Mm-hmm.
And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, look upon you and lift, uh, Lord, look upon you with favor and give you peace. Go in peace. Hey, don't, uh, make sure that you uh, find somebody that you don't have a close relationship with or that you haven't talked to in a while or maybe somebody that you haven't met before and uh, work on that relationship with them. Go in peace.